time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. And I'm your host, Robert McClure. In tonight's news, the spring primary was yesterday, so who will be appearing on the ballot in April? UW-Madison has announced a new sustainability initiative. And in the second half of the show, an inside look at life as a truck driver, some headlines from 55 years ago, and some dull weather over the weekend, but an interesting storm coming up next week. Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. The Sheboygan County District Attorney is asking to take his case straight to the Wisconsin Supreme Court and dodge the appeals court altogether in a case that seeks to settle whether an 1849 Wisconsin statute bars abortion. The Associated Press reports that Sheboygan County DA Joel Ermanski filed paperwork yesterday to ask the Wisconsin Supreme Court to hear the case directly. Last summer, a Dane County judge ruled that the 1849 statute only prevents feticide but does not apply to abortion. In a statement yesterday, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin maintained their vehement opposition to DA Ermanski's argument, but they said they do agree that bypassing the appeals court and taking the case straight to the state Supreme Court would avoid unnecessary delays. Planned Parenthood also said it would continue to keep their three abortion clinics across the state open. Those clinics are located in Milwaukee, Madison, and Sheboygan. Governor Tony Evers says he's poised to approve some, but not all, of the tax cut bills approved by the Republican legislature. That says four bills, proposed bills, totaling $2.1 billion, head to his desk. The state Senate approved the proposals yesterday after being approved by the state assembly last week. Unlike past attempts at tax cutting, which were vetoed by the governor, these proposals are focused more on reducing tax burden of middle-income classes. And unlike past attempts, Republicans have introduced each proposal separately, allowing the governor to, quote, pick and choose what he'd like to approve. One bill would more than triple the child tax credit from $3,000 to $10,000 for a single child and $6,000 to $20,000 for more than one dependent. Another would reduce the income tax rate for those earning between $20,000 and $150,000 by 20%. And another would exempt up to $75,000 in retirement income from taxes. Taken together, the proposals would reduce the state's record fiscal surplus by more than $2 billion. Democratic opponents say the proposals would be acceptable if they were implemented only for a single year, but if still in place after the surplus has been spent, they would require massive cuts in state programs and services. The executive director of the Republican Party of Wisconsin resigned yesterday amidst a challenging period for the state GOP. Mark Jefferson announced his resignation on the same day that Eric Hovde declared his candidacy for the GOP nomination to take on Senator Tammy Baldwin in November. It was also a day after Governor Evers signed off on new legislative maps that are likely to create primary battles between Republican incumbents fighting for a reduced number of seats. 
Jefferson was installed as the party chair by former Governor Walker in 2007 and served until 2011, and he returned to his position in 2017. As the party director, he has had to answer for a series of party defeats, including losses in statewide races for governor and a state Supreme Court seat. Don't be shocked, but Wisconsin households with young kids have a harder time making ends meet than other households do. That's according to the results of a recent survey run by the UW Survey Center. Parents with young children often make less money than they will later in their careers, and having young children can also mean higher expenses, of course. Many families pay as much as $13,000 a year for child care. This combination of having a lower salary along with higher child expenses can create a financial squeeze for the parents of young children. About 3,500 people took part in the survey. It asked respondents about their ability to pay monthly bills and if they could handle an expense they weren't expecting. Respondents were also asked how much they worry about running out of food before they're able to buy more and how concerned they are about inflation. Respondents will again be asked the same questions later this year to see how their answers change as the economy evolves. The intent is to get answers from people statewide covering a range of issues ahead of the upcoming fall election. Wisconsin elementary schools now have a choice of 11 reading curriculums to get their early grade students on their way to literacy. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that the new curriculums are based largely on phonics and what has been described as the science of reading. This bases the teaching of reading on decades of studies of how the brain learns to read, as well as the overall reading and speech environment of the child. The new curriculums have moved away, uh, move away from previous teaching strategies that have been blamed for falling reading scores in Wisconsin in all grades. More than half of the students in the state are reading at a less than proficient level. The new curriculums were selected by a joint effort of the Early Literacy Curriculum Council, a committee chosen by GOP legislative leaders and the Department of Public Instruction. School districts that choose one of the 11 curriculum can recover half of their costs from the state. Today, the state legislature passed a resolution requesting that the governor send members of the Wisconsin National Guard to, quote, help address the ongoing immigration crisis and defend our borders by sending aid and resources to assist with the influx of individuals crossing the border illegally, end quote. During the oft-heated debate, Democrats argued that defending the border is a federal concern. It was also argued that the recent tornadoes in Rock and Green counties were evidence that the Guard is needed for emergency duties in our state. Representative <coughs> pardon me, Representative Samba Balde, who is an immigrant from Africa, sent his comments to the media also, saying, quote, it was disheartening to hear my colleagues denigrate the migrants with terms such as illegals which is, of course, a term which removes the humanity of individual men and women and children who are actually migrants. News from the Wisconsin State House will quiet down in the next few weeks as lawmakers are poised to wrap up their normal legislative <coughs> session. The Wisconsin Assembly will meet for their last time this session tomorrow, reports Channel 3000. The State Senate will wrap up in March. That means some bills that made waves when introduced this session are likely to be dead this time around. For example, a Republican bill to legalize medical marijuana is likely to go nowhere this round after facing scrutiny from leaders in the state Senate. 
A bill to help municipalities pay for PFAS contamination testing is also likely to be a no-go this time due to opposition from Governor Evers over a section that would limit the authority of the state DNR. Another bill that would allow for a more flexible timeline to process ballots before Election Day has been approved by the State Assembly, but is likely dead in the State Senate. A community vigil intended to honor the victims of a recent triple homicide in Middleton has been rescheduled. The vigil was initially slated to be held tonight at the Lakeview Village apartment complex. That's where police say a Middleton woman killed her two young children and shot their father before turning the gun on herself Sunday night. Now, officials say the vigil has been rescheduled to this Saturday at 6.30 p.m., and it will be held at Lakeview Park on Allen Boulevard in Middleton. That's as details continue to emerge about the tragedy. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that a six-year-old boy and an eight-year-old girl were killed. Both attended Sauk Trail Elementary School. The father survived the ordeal and is currently hospitalized, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Middleton leaders grieved the tragedy during the city's common council meeting last night and called on the community to support each other, reports NBC15. And those were the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Yesterday's spring primary saw a modest turnout in Dane County. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the results. Yesterday, Dane County voters narrowed down the candidate <coughs> pool in a handful of local, nonpartisan races. Two Dane County board seats were on the ballot, as well as candidates in the Monona and Sun Prairie City Council races, and one seat on the Middleton Cross Plains School Board. 61,000 registered voters live in the relevant precincts and could have cast their ballots but less than 8% did so. Dane County Clerk Scott McDonald says this is lower than average. I think it relates to the fact that there was nothing at the top of the ticket. So depending on where you lived, you know, you weren't sure whether you even had an election. Like, so I, there was nothing on my ballot, for example, in, in downtown Madison. So I think that that contributed to the low turnout. He says that the small number of highly localized races can make it difficult to reach voters who would actually be able to participate. There wasn't like a general push like today's election day. Actually, for most of the county, it wasn't. All 37 seats on the Dane County Board will be on the ballot in April, but only two districts had candidate pools that needed to be narrowed down in yesterday's election. I live in one of those two districts, and when I arrived at my polling place about 20 minutes before closing, I did not see any other voters. However, it was still full of poll workers. According to McDonald, Low turnout elections aren't any cheaper to run. In April, would it, you know, we'd have to schedule maybe a few more poll workers, but in general, it, the costs are kind of static. Dane County's District 13 represents Madison's Regent and campus neighborhoods on the county board. With three candidates on the ballot, it was one of two Dane County board seats to head to a primary last night. Incumbent Jay Brower, a labor organizer with SEIU Wisconsin, won a sizable majority of votes at just under 68%. He'll face challenger Travis Austin, who won 19% of the vote in the April election. Third-place finisher Ronan Rataj won't move on to the spring election. District 36's current supervisor, State Representative Melissa Ratcliffe, 
decided not to seek another term. Three candidates ran to take on the job and represent Cottage Grove on the county board. David Peterson won just over 37% of the votes, just a single vote more than one of his opponents, Laureen Gage. The two will head on to the April election, but third-place finisher Andrew McKinney is out of the race. Meanwhile, the race for Monona City Council got whittled down by one candidate. The seventh candidate, Jeff Verberg, received 3.5% of the votes and is out of the running. Incumbent alders Brian Holmquist, Patrick DePula, and Teresa Rademacher each earned around a quarter of the votes cast. They'll move on to April with challengers Rachel Kugel, Jerry Thompson, and Candace Verberg. The race for Sun Prairie City Council got whittled down from three to two. Santiago Rosas won just over 45% of the votes. Bill Baker won just under 35%, and at just under 20% of the votes, the third candidate, Matthew Hill, won't move on. Finally, Katie Frank won more than half of the votes in the race for the Middleton Cross Plains School Board. Her closest competition, Lauren Rogers, won 18% and beat out two other candidates, David Bell and Nate Day. There are 41 days until the April 2nd spring election, but it's not too early to make a plan to vote. You can find answers to common voting questions at My Vote Wisconsin. Starting in about three weeks, around March 12th, you can preview what's on your ballot. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. And the time is now 619 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. University of Wisconsin-Madison's new Sustainability Research Hub is scheduled to launch this spring as part of a campus-wide initiative. Jennifer, C- Chancellor Jennifer Manukin announced earlier this month. The initiative's stated goals range from promoting collaborative research to achieving net zero emissions by 2048. Our producer, Faye Parks, spoke with Missy Nurgard, UW-Madison Director of Sustainability, and Paul Robbins, Dean of the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies, to learn more. On the line, I have Missy Nurgard, Director of Sustainability at UW-Madison. Thank you for joining me, Missy. Thank you so much for having me. So earlier this month, Chancellor Mnookin announced UW's new sustainability initiative. What are the initiative's main goals? The initiative is largely around environmental sustainability, but it's really focused in the University of Wisconsin's mission, which is education and research. Sustainability is often conflated with environmental issues, which it really is, but our mission at the university is really to educate our students and based on the Wisconsin idea, right, do everything for the betterment of the people of Wisconsin and the world. So the chancellor has taken this opportunity to really focus on how do we as an institution really address the problems that our Wisconsin populations are seeing day to day in their lives, whether it's the production of milk in the dairy cattle or the impacts of climate change on our economics. We just saw that there is a federal disaster loans available because of a lack of snow. So these are really personal issues and the chancellor's initiative is intended to coordinate all of these disparate actions that we've got going on across campus because we're doing amazing things and bring them together in a more purposeful, driven way to address some of the the challenges people are seeing every day. So I understand that leadership at UW-Madison also set some pretty ambitious goals. For example, procuring 100% renewable electricity on campus by 2030 and achieving net zero emissions by 2048 or sooner. Can you tell us more about these goals? 
So the campus obviously is is pretty big. I think we're in the top 10 if we were just a city in Wisconsin. So we have a lot of environmental impact. So one of the ways the chancellor is really looking at how to address our environmental impact and develop solutions for the state of Wisconsin is to use our research enterprise and our, our the initiative and innovation of our students to address some of those issues on campus. So we can be a demonstration really leveraging the knowledge sector at the university in an applied way. And that also, we are a huge economic driver for the state of Wisconsin. So the university purchases a lot of things and we have 50,000 students that bring in stuff to campus. So if we dissect how much waste the university generates, we are currently at about over 400 pounds per campus user. So everyone on campus generates about 400 pounds of municipal waste, things that go to the landfill every year. And the chancellor would like to see us drop that to less than 100 pounds per person as we move forward. So they're pretty ambitious goals. And one of the ways that we're really looking at that is we buy a lot of stuff, but also how can we increase the economic opportunities in this region for a lot of the materials that can be recycled or repurposed and build those industries? And that will, of course, then amplify opportunities for other people to recycle or repurpose materials. And so what kind of funding is this sustainability initiative getting and where is that coming from? The chancellor has provided a great deal of support around the initiatives, especially around the research area. And the institution has also put forward funding to do some studies. So as you mentioned, that the decarbonization is, is a pretty significant goal and it's very complex, which is why that goal is a little bit further out. So right now we're undertaking a study on decarbonization, right? How do we transform the utility infrastructure at the university to actually be low carbon in 20 years. And we have electric vehicle studies going, right? How do we transform and implement electric vehicle charging for the university's fleet and for the visitors that come to the institution? So right now the initial funding is largely around research and studies. And I think it's really important to recognize that the institution has plans to build buildings. There's already a lot of funding and financing going into existing things. What we're doing with a sustainability program is integrating some of those resilience features into things that are already getting funded. So it's not necessarily an additional cost. We're doing it smarter and we're using newer technology and it'll be more efficient in the long term. So even if there is a small upfront cost now to implement a newer technology over the life cycle of that building, the operational cost for the institution will decrease. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Missy. Thank you, Faye. It was lovely. I'm now speaking with Paul Robbins, Dean of the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at UW-Madison. Thank you for joining me, Paul. Thanks for having me. So we heard about some of UW-Madison's sustainability goals for the years ahead, but Chancellor Mnookin also announced that the university will be launching the new Sustainability Research Hub this spring. Can you tell us more about that hub? Well, here's the thing. If you want to solve globally relevant sustainability problems, new kinds of energy, new ways of managing waste, thinking about people's behaviors relative to managing water or, or use of various resources. That's an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary place. You gotta have engineers who understand how systems work and social scientists who understand how people think and humanities people who understand ethics and, and, and the human dimensions. So when people wanna write grants, 
to get money on the table, to solve real problems, it's really, really hard to use the existing mechanisms available to us to put teams together because it's expensive, it's time consuming to put an engineer in the room with a historian so that they understand each other. I call it transaction heavy. It means it takes a lot of negotiations to kind of get everybody to understand each other. The Sustainability Research Hub is designed to do that work so that we can actually solve sustainability problems. Are there some general research goals that you guys have set? Anything that you'd like to look forward to on the horizon? I will say that there's a certain opportunism about a smart, well-built research hub. Its job is in some ways to be a listening post. So that when you hear what the federal priorities are, for example, you know, federal investments in particular kinds of infrastructure, particular kinds of energy systems to transition for sustainability, that you're in front of it and you show up at the door with smart investigators and scientists and graduate students and undergraduate students who are already ready to answer whatever question it is. So you don't want to name your questions too quickly. You want to make sure that you want to, you want to skate to where the puck is going rather than where it is. Uh, having said that, if you think about UW-Madison and you say, what are our sustainability strengths? We are masters of climate change science and especially of climate adaptation planning, which is taking the forecast that we know you know, things are changing, precipitation and temperature, and being able to produce data that we can make decisions with, whether that's wildlife management or snowmobile industry, to be able to do that, that's something we're very good at. We keep an eye on climate adaptation planning kinds of, uh, of research opportunities, things to do with climate change and things to do with community-focused, justice-oriented outcomes around climate change. Because climate change, when we fix it, and we will fix it, it will be too late to keep it from have, having changed somewhat. So climate adaptation is big. Water. If Madison isn't working on major water grants around the country and around the world, then something's gone wrong because Madison is the place where limnology was invented. It's a place where we have more widespread expertise on freshwater systems. That's in the limnology program, sure. But we have, we have rhetoricians in the English department who are experts on water resources. So water is a big one. We're keeping an eye on major funding support for water research and again, both of these things, the climate and the water as examples of things we're looking at, almost always starting with community-based concerns. What's gonna affect the Wisconsin public? What's gonna affect decision makers in Milwaukee? What's gonna affect communities that are dependent on snowpack for their livelihood or for health and safety? That's where this research starts. That's what all this will have in common, is that we'll have a public focus for a public university, land grant. <laughs> I understand, too, that this initiative has set some pretty ambitious goals for carbon emissions and for waste. Uh, is that something that the Research Hub will have a hand in? Yes. So that's uh, such a good question. So we've got our own goals on this campus. Like, we've got to green the campus. We have to actually get in line with carbon neutrality and zero waste. We should be mobilizing the smart people, students and faculty, to be doing science that would move that forward. I'm going to give you an example of a place I'd really like to see the hub working. Biodigestion. So that is taking things like food waste that comes out of campus kitchens or comes out of Costco's. At the end of the day, everything that Costco doesn't sell from their muffin department winds up in the landfill. If you could take that, that's all energy. You could take that and biodigest it in a, in a large anaerobic biodigester in a way that is technically efficient. You could be producing energy with it instead of letting it rot there and turn into methane. Instead of making greenhouse gases, you could be making energy. But the science on this needs more research, feasibility, the economics needs more, definitely needs more investigation. We need to understand what we'd call the 
industrial ecology, like where do you put a digester so that you can capture the most waste flows? How does the campus fit into that as a place that produces a lot of waste and needs a lot of energy? I can totally see a research project, a major research project that's interdisciplinary with economists, right? With uh, biological systems engineers who actually understand digestion, with people who have to construct and manage these kinds of systems, logistics people from the business department. Put all of those people together, we could be taking UW garbage and producing UW energy that we could share with the community. That we need to do more science on and we need to do actually build. We have to do both. The Sustainability Research Hub should be able to catalyze that. Yes. I think that covers all of my questions, but is there anything else you'd like to add for our listeners? Uh, remember that anytime we do something around here, whether that's a $5 million National Science Foundation grant or a new patent or some other innovation that is amazing, technical, far thinking kind of UW stuff, there's secretly students underneath all of that, sometimes not so secretly. The students are often the innovators. All these projects will put students to work. Many of them will galvanize and, and propel new student ideas. We have a green fund on campus where students bring us sustainability ideas and we turn them into operations for campus. The Sustainability Research Hub should be there every step of the way. The hub will be a cross-campus place, not just for faculty scientists, but for students, our undergraduates, our graduates, and community members who are curious. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Paul. Thanks, Faye. Take it easy. And that was Paul Robbins, Dean of the UW-Madison's Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies. And before him, you heard UW-Madison Director of Sustainability, Missy Niergaard. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for joining us this evening. Looking for an adventurous and fulfilling career? Truck driving may be for you. You'll keep the world running and enjoy a bit of spontaneity while you do it. Today on Madison's Backbone, feature contributor Riley Cutright learns about life as a female truck driver in Wisconsin. A community is a unified body of individuals sharing something in common. Over a quarter of a million people call Madison, Wisconsin their home. Have you ever wondered about the secret to Madison's vibrant and unique community? Well, I have the answer for you. Workers. This segment features the working voices who undeniably strengthen and brighten Madison's community on the daily. I am Riley Cutright, and this is Madison's Backbone. Hi, I'm Riley Cutright, and this is Madison's Backbone, and I'm here with Danielle. Hey, I'm Danielle. I am a female truck driver. How did you get your start? So I found a company that I felt was fitting for me in the area, and I just reached out and I did my CDL training through them. What kind of education do you need? You said that you needed a CDL, but is there any other training that you need or education that you need to be a truck driver? Huh. Well, yeah, you definitely need to go to CDL school. Um, it is not necessarily easy. So it goes through 
think I did about two to three weeks of training, probably like three weeks learning how to operate it. And then there were some technical things because you do have to take state tests to get your CDL. What do you do in your work day? Yeah, so it's basically just driving and getting the product wherever it needs to be delivered or and or picked up. What are the hours of your shifts and is that consistent? No, it's very inconsistent. It depends on when you need to deliver or when you need to pick up. So there's usually a scheduled time to be there. Sometimes you can be waiting at a facility for ever. And yeah, so it varies. And how long are your shifts? So it can be legally you have you have like 11 hours a day to drive. You also have 14 hours you can work. So you have like waiting time and things like that. So it can vary. And every day is completely different. Mm-hmm. You're always working <laughs> the full time. You know that most days are going to be long. Right now, I do just local. Okay. And so local is typically within the area, a few hours out. It just really depends. But over the road, that is, it varies. So this term over the road refers to drivers who haul their freight across long distances. So across state borders and sometimes even country borders, they travel from coast to coast, traveling thousands of miles. And so you say that you drive locally. What exactly does that mean? Is that like just within Wisconsin or just within like the Midwest or? So locally for me at the moment means just in the vicinity of Wisconsin. So here around the Madison area and then expanding out just a little bit, not much further. What is the most difficult part of your job? I would say the hours and the inconsistency, not knowing what tomorrow is going to bring is definitely, well, for me, it's a thrill-seeking adventure, but that also can be a little strange. So yeah, just not really knowing, you know, what exactly is going to be happening. And is it one of those things where you like get your schedule like two weeks before and you're like, oh, wow, I'm working some really weird times. Or do you just walk in and they say you're doing this? No, you basically just wake up out of your sleeper and it's just, you know, you might deliver and then get a plan for where you need to go next but it's yeah it's um very fly on the moment you just living on the seat of your pants literally (laughs) yeah okay so maybe i asked this already but could you give me like a day in the life of a truck driver like just pick a random spot maybe in your schedule like this past week and just tell me what like waking up in your sleeper and then going to sleep somewhere like what is that like Most people would probably say that you need to plan for where you're going to end your day, but being such a free spirit that I am, Mm -hmm. I wait until it's like three hours out. Okay. You know, um, so you definitely need to have an idea of where you're going to end your day. That is a very important part because when you wake up in the morning, you've got to get up, get on the road. So it's basically like I'm a coffee person. I need to sit and have my coffee Mm -hmm. before I can get ready to hit the day and then, you know, 
um, get in the truck, head out, and go to wherever I need to be. Yeah. You know, meals aren't at a certain time. Everything is always a little bit differently. Um, and then, you know, it's either picking up or delivering and then you go to sleep and, you know, you might have a little bit of downtime. I've been fortunate enough to be in some pretty cool areas to be able to either see or walk around and adventure around. And so, yeah, that's really just a day in the life. Go to sleep and repeat. <laughs> yeah. So would you recommend this job to people who like traveling? Yeah and no. So it's not for it's not for everyone because you though you do have that freedom of being in different places, it's also can be very um time consuming. You know, you can't necessarily just stop everywhere and see everything and do everything and at the same time you can't get a semi in a lot of places right would you say that you have to be a people person to work this job or is this a job that's really good for people who don't like interacting with others no that's the great thing about it is you can be very introverted because there's some days that i've went where i had little to no interaction and that's great being introverted what is your favorite part about your job for me the favorite part is the sunrise and the sunset that's so beautiful because each day no matter where you are you're usually going to see either the sunrise or the sunset and that is that's the best part for me aside from being able to listen to you know, podcast and different things. But yeah, the sunrise and the sunset. Do you have a favorite time of year to drive? It is not the winter <laughs> at all. Probably fall. Mm. I love the colors of fall. So you're constantly able to see it's just beautiful in the fall. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Madison's Backbone this week. We'll be in with part two to continue our discussion with Danielle of what it's like being a female truck driver. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT <coughs> weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, I thought we might make a good run at 60 degrees today, and we did manage to do it finally around 3 o'clock this afternoon. That was despite a good amount of passing high clouds above us, mostly cirrus, and also light surface winds. The record high temperature for today is 62. That was set just seven years ago, back in 2017, so we weren't far off of that. The month as a whole is running 11 and a half degrees above normal, or at least it will be after today gets counted in. And that anomaly will uh, decrease a little bit as we go into the weekend, but this upcoming cool off is looking a little less robust and a little shorter actually than it did back on Monday morning when I gave the forecast. And with what may be an even more intense warm streak early next week, if you can believe it, it uh, it's well possible the month as a whole may end up even further uh, off the scales in the record book by the time it finishes than it already is. 
Uh, if you have a look at the water vapor image of the continental U.S. that we have uh, linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening, you'll see that we have a sort of promising-looking upper trough setting up to our southwest in the subtropical branch of the jet stream down over the Four Corners region. That's going to lift quickly east-northeastward during this coming overnight, passing uh, just south of us through about central Illinois to, uh, early tomorrow. Uh, if you have a look at the surface isobars on that image, uh, you'll note that much of the Gulf of Mexico currently is being blocked by the southwestern end of a surface ridge that's out over the east coast. So this passing system is not going to have sufficient moisture to produce precipitation up here on its northwestern side. Uh, the air mass that's going to get drawn into here behind the passing low tomorrow will be of Pacific Ocean origin uh, by way of the plain, so uh, barely cooler at all than what we have over us at the moment. And so likely to produce uh, temperatures again, I think, in the 50s once the cloud cover gets out of the way in the afternoon. A more Arctic-level air mass will then descend southward as we go overnight, and that'll knock a good uh, 20 degrees off the high temperatures on Friday. But uh, like last weekend, this push of Arctic surface high pressure is only going to kind of clip us as it gets sheared off mostly to the east as it descends southward by the polar jet stream, uh, thus taking it sort of into the northeastern states in New England rather than here. So a rebound into the 40s is likely over the weekend, uh, certainly by Sunday, if not already by late Saturday. And that then is going to set us up for what looks to be an interesting couple of days as we get out into early next week. Uh, as I mentioned on Monday, a significant upper wave is forecast by pretty much all the longer-range computer models to be transiting the continent in the Monday to Tuesday time frame next week. And although the details of what kind of uh, surface storm might evolve from that remain sketchy, all the models show robust warming on Monday and Tuesday as the storm approaches from the west, with Tuesday in particular quite likely to see record high temperatures. So uh, that would mean somewhere north of 58 degrees. So far, the major, modeling, uh, major models are forecasting low to mid-60s on Tuesday. The all-time record high temperature for February uh, 27th, which is next Tuesday, is 68 degrees. Uh, that was also set during that uh, effectively a heat wave back in 2017. So anyway, that uh, all-time temperature could also conceivably, all-time high temperature for February could also conceivably fall. Uh, dew points will likely reach the upper 40s or low 50s early next week, so we're likely to have sufficient uh, energy in place for thunderstorms as a cold front starts to approach later Tuesday or Wednesday. And whether or not we also get other severe parameters to possibly set up during that time frame is something we're going to have to keep our eyes on going forward. Uh, no indications either way about that just yet. So anyway, back to the uh, otherwise un rather unremarkable details uh, for the next several days. Uh, tonight, continued passing cirrus, uh, perhaps with some additional mid-level clouds as we get later in the night, will help uh, cut the temperature fall, so uh, upper 30s will probably be as low as we go. Uh, winds will be light, generally below 5 miles per hour, veering uh, nominally uh, northwest and north. Tomorrow, thicker morning cloud cover will gradually clear from west to east through the day, with temperatures responding to the low or possibly mid-50s on light northerly winds, backing more westerly at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Clouds may again begin to increase as we go overnight with northwesterly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour dropping the temperatures into the low 30s. And then on Friday morning you're likely to feel the much drier Arctic air starting to flow into the area on northerly winds which will be up at 8 to 12 miles per hour during the day. 
The temperatures will basically hold uh, steady where they uh, begin at the beginning of the day in the low to mid 30s and uh, steepening of the low level lapse rates will inspire a fair bit of cumulus development, perhaps even some stratocumulus overcast for a while on Friday. Clouds may break some later in the day. Temperatures overnight will drop to around 20 on continued northerly winds with some additional clearing possible by Saturday morning. And Saturday will be mostly sunny and a bit warmer with temperatures pushing back towards 40 anyway on backing west to southwest winds which will come up to 5 to 10 miles per hour. Uh, Southerly winds during that ensuing overnight will hold temperatures in the low 30s with the thermometer then striking perhaps 50 already on Sunday which will otherwise be a breezy day with passing uh, high and mid-level clouds. It is currently 49 degrees down here at the uh, station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 33. Uh, passing mid-level clouds up at about 16,000 feet. Uh, winds have been light and variable over the past hour, and the barometer is at 29.81 inches of mercury and uh, fairly steady over the past few hours. We go now to late February 1969 for the conclusion of the historic Black Studies strike at the University of Wisconsin. Here's Stu Levitan with the news from 55 years ago this week on tonight's Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, February 1969, The Black Studies Strike, Part 3. As disruptions from the Black Studies Strike escalate, local law enforcement can't keep up, so Mayor Otto Feske and the university leadership ask Governor Warren Knowles to call out the Wisconsin National Guard. The 1st Battalion of 900 Guardsmen begin arriving in jeeps with guns permanently attached around 9.30 Wednesday night, February 12th. They prove a mixed blessing. They keep campus buildings open and are more restrained than Madison police and Dane County deputies. But they also trigger a reaction among students, causing strike participation to grow sharply and promoting an escalation of response. That afternoon, about 7,000 strikers take to the streets under the disciplined direction of black marshals. The crowd blocks University Avenue four times in two hours until strikers are removed by police with clubs and guardsmen with fixed bayonets. Police club some students, fire a couple of tear gas canisters into crowds to clear intersections, and make ten arrests. But there are no major confrontations. At about 6 p.m., Governor Knowles activates another 1,200 guardsmen. That night, close to 10,000 students, many with torchlights, march from Library Mall to the square and back. The march is self-policed and orderly, marred only by some racist catcalling by a few onlookers. After the march, about 500 go to 6210 Social Sciences to hear SDS co-founder and Chicago 8 defendant Tom Hayden talk about the war, which he says America has lost. His appearance is unrelated to the strike, and he demurs commenting on the action. On Friday, things are calming down with only some token picketing of academic buildings and targeted obstruction of University Avenue. 
The guard and police from outside agencies are withdrawn from the central campus, but not deactivated. A noon march to the Capitol and back disrupts traffic, but is disciplined and peaceful, as is another torchlit march of about a thousand that night. Meanwhile, at their meeting in Milwaukee, the regents unanimously commend Chancellor Edwin Young for his handling of the crisis, but demand an investigation into the Black Revolution Symposium. Several say it sparked the disruptions. Young tells the regents of the potential for trouble beyond the Black People's Alliance's 13 demands. Even if we had no black students on campus, he says, quote, we would still have difficulties because there is a determined group of white students who are truly revolutionary and say that this is a corrupt and rotten society and it ought to be destroyed. Saturday, a petition supporting University Avenue, quote, in its refusal to surrender to mob pressure and lawless force, is signed by 1,372 of the 2,050 faculty members. The campus is quiet. The biggest excitement is at the Camp Randall Memorial Building, where 2,000 fans cheer the Wisconsin track team to victory over Michigan State. Eight black trackmen boycott the meet. Coach Charles Rutt Walker takes no action against them. The strike's momentum begins to wane on Monday, February 17th, with numbers down to about 700. But strikers continue to obstruct streets and disrupt classes. Some shout down Professor George Mossy as he attempts to lecture on European cultural history. But Mossy takes a historian's view of the incident and is nonplussed. On Tuesday, Black People's Alliance leader Willie Edwards tells a small rally of about 150 that the strike is suspended, pending Wednesday's special faculty meeting called to consider their demands. Over the 14 days of the strike, attendance has been off by about 10%. Some classes were shut down and some reduced to half, while the Western campus generally had full attendance. That afternoon, about half the guardsmen are sent home, with the rest to follow on Thursday. In the pre-dawn hours of Wednesday, February 19th, arsonists set nine separate fires which heavily damaged the UW Afro-American Race Relations Center at 929 University Avenue. The center has been the main meeting place for the strike leaders. Later that afternoon, faculty vote at a special meeting 524 to 518 not to recommend that the three black students expelled from Oshkosh be immediately admitted to the Madison campus. Monday afternoon, Governor Knowles tells a press conference that his fellow Republicans controlling the legislature, quote, should not adopt legislation on the basis of prejudice or panic. In the two weeks since the black strike started, Assembly Speaker Harold Freilich and others have introduced a raft of bills to punish protesters and cut state support for the university. That night, the Faculty Committee on Studies and Instructions in Race Relations chaired by Professor William Thede, recommends establishment of a black studies department, the primary demand of the strike. But because students would not have equal authority with faculty in establishing curriculum, making appointments, and granting tenure, the Daily Cardinal denounces the report as, quote, an utterly unacceptable and insulting compromise that recommends only token efforts and denies even a token student participation. After several days with little progress, black leaders frustrated by the lack of action on the Thede Committee recommendations call for a resumption of the strike. 
In a 45-minute outburst on Thursday, February 27th, about 200 mostly white militants invade eight campus buildings, doing about $2,000 in damage, and setting off a smoke bomb that drives right-wing state senator Gordon Roselip from the stage of a social sciences classroom. Chancellor Young calls these deeds, quote, acts of desperation by a small group of militants who have lost most of their following. At about the same time, the state Senate gives final legislative approval to a joint special committee, its members overwhelmingly Republican, to investigate campus disturbances. Black Council leader Horace Hansen later denounces the property damage, but says, quote, it is not the place of the Black Council to impose sanctions upon those whose intense reaction to destructive oppression has been destruction. On March 3rd, by a vote of 540 to 414, the faculty endorses the Thede Committee's recommendation for an autonomous Department of Afro-American Studies within the College of Letters and Sciences. The regents approve the detailed plans for a new department in January 1970, with an expected start date that fall making the Black Study Strike of February 1969 Madison's most successful political protest of the era. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live, volunteer-produced local news. You'll note once again, I don't have a reporter to thank this evening, so if you'd like to report on Wednesday evenings, we'd love to have you. We provide all the training, so don't worry about that. Just get in contact with the station. During business hours, we could use another weather person or two down here as well during the week's worth of evening news. Our headline writer this evening was David Aaron. Special thanks to feature contributors Riley Cutright and Stu Levitan. Katie Turgella is our on-air engineer. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.